0: Hi, welcome to Thinking Ahead, the mental health tech podcast from IESO. I'm Tom Clarford. Today, we're talking about some fascinating research a couple of my guests have done into subtypes of depression. Joining me today are Dr. Jennifer Gentile, SVP of US Research and Clinical Innovation at IESO, Dr. Anna Caterina, Director of Clinical Sciences at IESO, and Dr. Mel Simmons-Buckley, joining us from Sheffield University's Clinical Psychology Unit. Welcome to you all. Right, we'll get straight into it. Uh, Jennifer, I wonder if you could just start us off with some definitions. What, what is depression?
1: Great question. What is depression? So depression or the kind of clinical definition is called major depressive disorder. So if your doctor writes it down on a billing sheet, they say you have major depressive disorder, but that's a range of kind of very mild depression symptoms up to severe depression. And it's when people experience changes in uh, mood, behavior, and sometimes physical symptoms as well. And if I could start off with a quick example, Um, and so as to protect privacy of patients, uh, these aren't actual patients, but they're much like many of the the patients I've been caring for over the past uh, 20 years as a a clinical psychologist. So we have the first person. Let's call her Mia. She's a 32-year-old mother who has arthritis. She's experiencing some loss of energy, uh, decreased mood and interest. She's lost three stone and uh, having thoughts of wanting to die. And then due to her debilitating depression symptoms, uh, Mia is having trouble getting out of bed, trouble caring for her kids. And then there's a, another uh, patient. Let's call him uh, James. So James is a 45-year-old single male. Uh, he has no history of medical conditions, and he's experiencing a decrease in mood, uh, concentration, some irritability, guilt, loss of pleasure, and also an increase in appetite. Um, John's gotten some arguments with coworkers, and he's actually at risk of um, losing his job um, due to a decrease in performance. And so when each of them, so James and Mia, go to their doctor, uh, they both likely will be diagnosed with depression, but yet um, their presentations are very different. They're also both likely receive the same types of treatment, which really, honestly, if you think about it, doesn't make a lot of sense. And so um, different people having different groups of of symptoms that result in the same diagnosis is very common in depression. Uh, There are 277 symptom combinations that add up to that one diagnosis of depression. So it's honestly, it's no wonder that um, only about 50% of people with depression uh, recover because if we can't figure out that first step to figure out what subtype of depression, then, also what the right, more personalized treatment for the patient, and it makes sense that we're we're sitting at about fifty percent recovery rates for for folks.
0: Thanks for that. So that's that's fascinating. Uh, two hundred over two hundred different combinations of possible combinations of symptoms is that presumably you don't have to have all two hundred. So it's not just feeling sadness. Then, like it's it's different. And it sounds like very different in terms of all the different types of symptoms you can experience.
1: It is. No, it's not just sadness. Um, So we all experience sadness and a range of different emotions. It's just part of kind of being human or the human experience. But when you experience uh, depression, and if you if you're diagnosed with depression, it means you have symptoms for a sustained period of time, and this often uh, thinks something called functional impairment. So it's negatively impacting your ability to function. So it could be with relationships or work performance, or the example with Mia with childcare. But it it particularly influences and and for folks who have more severe um, symptoms, they could have thoughts of wanting to die or, or, or even trying to to kill themselves unfortunately
0: that can be really really tough on people then um very severe and you mentioned subtypes of depression there jennifer um which i think we'll get into in a lot more detail with anna and mel but when you're treating depression do you do you treat these different types of depression differently
1: so at this point in time with the, the research that's available, there are evidence based treatments for depression in general or kind of the broad overarching category of depression. And we don't generally think of depression in subtypes. So in graduate school for psychology, for example, I didn't learn about depression subtypes or there, there are different kinds of treatments for different kinds of depression. Um, so it's, it's frankly, it's more of a one size fits all um category. So if you give the, the example for the for me and James, they either both would have gotten uh, a medication, could be the exact same medication, very likely. Um, or someone could say, you know, go ahead and do a, a particular kind of evidence-based therapy for depression. So the broad category of depression.
0: Right, which might contribute to that 50-50 chance of recovering. Absolutely. My goodness. Okay. I wonder if I could just bring Anna in. Anna, you you had a paper published last year on these subtypes of depression. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yes, of course. As Jennifer was saying, uh, this idea of depression subtypes isn't new. Uh, The clinical community uh, accepts that there are different presentations of depression, different symptom profiles that patients can come to the clinic with. Um, But so far even though there have been definitions of depression subtypes, you may have heard things like melancholic depression or depression uh, with psychotic features and things like that. Those definitions were mostly based on theory and the clinical use utility in terms of choosing uh, different treatment protocols for different patients has been quite limited historically. And so we, what we wanted to do in our paper was to, was to use a data-driven approach to investigate these depression subtypes instead of a theoretical-driven approach. So we used um, something called a latent Markov model to look at uh, depression questionnaires for patients with depression coming into our service. And we sort of clustered or divided those questionnaires into different groups Um, of depressive symptom profiles, if you want. So what kind of symptoms are these patients experiencing in each of these different groups? Um, So it could be like Jennifer was explaining more cognitive symptoms around low self-esteem and low mood, or it could be more somatic or physical symptoms around tiredness and changes in appetite and so on. And so what we've shown with this work is that not only there are different depression subtypes um, that load differently on different depressive symptoms, but that these different subtypes also respond differently to a specific type of therapy called cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, So different subtypes have different outcomes. And so it it seems logical that they should also have different treatment approaches.
0: Yeah, indeed, that does sound logical. So Um, how many different types of, subtypes, excuse me, of depression did you identify?
2: In our work, we identified three subtypes of depression. So um, cognitive, so around symptoms of low self-esteem, low mood, somatic or physical, around symptoms of tiredness, difficulties with sleep and changes in appetite. And this subtype that seems to be uh, a combination of both cognitive and physical symptoms, which we called hybrid or typical depression, uh, which tends to be more severe and combines both cognitive and physical symptoms of depression.
0: And um, we think that these different subtypes respond differently to different treatment. Is that right?
2: Exactly. So in the, in our service, we, we offer patients cognitive behavioural therapy. And what we see, for example, is that patients with the physical uh, symptoms of depression tend to respond less well uh, to cognitive behavioral therapy compared to patients with more cognitive symptoms. So these patients with more physical symptoms tend to engage less with treatment. And even when they do engage, they tend to respond less well to treatment.
0: Wow. Okay, so there's the potential here then for treatments that really uh, match the condition, that treat these subtypes of depression and potentially get better outcomes than the, the 50-50 that Jennifer was referring to at the beginning of the show.
2: Yes, exactly. And that, that's what we would like to explore in the future. That's where the value of uh, this type of research is. Now that we know that the patients in different subtypes respond differently to treatment, then now we need to find out what is the best type of treatment for those patients, what do they
0: respond best? I wonder if you could also um, just shed a little light on what Jen said about recovery. Um, she said it was 50-50. That seems incredibly low. Is there a reason for that?
2: Yes, it is incredibly low indeed. And and I think it's shockingly low. Uh, and, it, you know, even more shocking perhaps is to know that these outcomes have not changed in decades. So. When you go to your doctor and you have symptoms of depression, whether or not you're going to respond to the treatment that you're going to be offered is really the flip of a coin. And why that is, is the idea that Jennifer was talking about and that we're discussing today about, uh, you know, there are several different types of depression, but the reality is that everyone receives the same treatment. So Mia and James, as Jennifer was saying, will receive the same medication, we will receive the same type of therapy. And that just
1: isn't good enough.
0: Absolutely not.
1: And I think as a clinician to to add that this isn't something that this is a super rare condition. So we haven't, I don't know, put a lot of research dollars into or just doesn't seem to be negatively impacting public health, for example, but it's actually a very common condition. Uh, On average, 8 to 10% of people will experience a major depressive episode in their lifetime, and And more often than not, they're going to have a recurrence of depression it's the the number one cause of disability worldwide uh so it's it's something that it it impacts all layers of society It impacts um, worker productivity people's ability to participate in parenting responsibilities. It can uh, impact um other other challenges relationships or um, productivity or self care. Um, It results in frequent, um, can result in frequent inpatient stays. Um, So it really reverberates through uh, many, many parts of society and is a major public health problem that we just frankly need to be better treating.
0: Wow. Thank you. So, Mel, I wonder if I could bring you in here. Um, Your paper, recently published, covers the, the same sort of area as Anna's paper, right?
3: Yes, it does. Um, We actually replicated the the same study, but in a more traditional sample of patients accessing face-to-face CBT. So this is because the delivery model that was used in Anna's study um, is is quite unique. It could be that these effects are specific to the clinical samples that might um, access computer-assisted, kind of text-enabled treatment. So we wanted to see if the findings were generalize to a more typical clinical samples uh, who receive in-person therapy. So we used real-world data of patients' routine outcomes from people with depression who'd received face-to-face CBT. And we also identified a series of uh, subtypes. Uh, like Anna's initial study, we identified the, the cognitive subtype and the somatic subtype, as well as this, um, what we called a, a typical subtype with the more kind of even uh, severity across all symptoms. We expanded on the, on the study that Anna's talked about a little bit by exploring this typical subtype a little bit more and we, we kind of found a further distinction between this typical subtype based on the final item on the, on the PHQ-9 measure that refers to suicidal risk with a subset who scored quite lowly on this item even as other, the other items were more severe. Uh, and a separate subset who had a more elevated scores on this item. So so we classified them slightly further into a typical low-risk and a typical high-risk grouping. And then when we looked at how these subtypes responded to the CBT treatment, we found a very similar relationship to what Anna's described, with the cognitive patients um, being more likely to engage, attend more sessions, and attain reliable improvement compared to the typical and somatic subtypes. We also found a slight difference in the the typical high-risk and low-risk groups. They had no difference in terms of their clinical outcomes, in terms of how they recovered, but there were some differences in their engagement with therapy. With those in the the high-risk typical group, um, less likely to engage with therapy initially, but then once they did, they were less likely to drop out after starting treatment. And that group were also more likely to be male, younger, um, and have higher baseline anxiety and depression.
0: That's fascinating and it's really great to hear that you were able to reproduce those findings. So the odds of this being a quirk of of our data set are very low. I guess obviously both your data and Anna's data is from UK adults, right? So I guess there's a small chance it could just be a quirk of the British psyche.
3: (laughs) Well, there is that. I mean the fact that they're different clinical samples, it's pretty strong evidence for replication of something that's going on, at least in in the UK. Um, but they were they access slightly different modality of treatment and also the the data that my study was based on was from multiple services across the country with different service you know factors different therapists different patient features such as socioeconomic status so all these things add to helping it make very encouraging findings this is more of a generalizable effect and not just something specific to the the particular setting that the data came from
0: um, anna am i right in saying that the um that these subtypes are identifiable at presentation, when we first see the patient?
2: Yes, absolutely. Now that we have run these models, we can, when any patient comes into our service, we can know what depression subtype they are more likely to be in, and we can adapt our interventions according to that information. So we can get additional support for patients who uh, maybe in a depressive subtype that is less likely to respond to therapy or less likely to engage, we can have additional measures in place to help those patients engage and interact with therapy and ultimately respond and, and have see an improvement in their symptoms.
0: This is really fantastic news, but guys, your your studies have got the potential here to allow clinicians to actually guide their patients towards interventions that are likely to be effective for them rather than just finding out halfway through or after the fact so what can we do with this then Um, we we know we can work out what one of these groups somebody's in when they come to us how do we then take the next step and start developing personalized medicine personalized treatment plans for for people who when they come in
3: well, that's the the next bit of research we'd like to look into. Um, we first need to work out. We know that they've got these subtypes that may not respond as well to CBT, but we don't know about other treatments. So, we'd like to try and work out what treatment would work best for these subtypes that may not respond as well. Um, and once we get some more options for the be able to assign patients to treatments, we then could prospectively treatment match them based on what's going to work best for them. But we first need to understand. What those treatments are using the data
0: absolutely, and um moa, does your data set contain treatments other than cbt are you are you're, you're actively looking into this now are you Yes,
3: yes, yeah. so our data set has more than just cbt treatments um in it uh, we used a subset of it for this analysis, so that is something we're we're working on trying to look at whether this these effects with subtypes and, and their differential response to treatments happened to other other treatments that are available. Um, so I think we're looking. We'd like to look at counselling for depression, as that's another common treatment that's assigned for depression. Um, we'd also like to investigate the kind of medication effects, um, whether there's an interaction going on there. So that's stuff that's going on at the moment.
0: Fantastic. We'll keep our keep our eyes peeled for the sequel, then, eh? Um, Anna, I wonder if I could ask you what the next steps for um, for our research are. What are we going to um, do with these findings?
2: The next steps for our project are pretty much in line with what Mel was describing. In fact, I think it will be a collaboration between ourselves and the University of Sheffield. Um, We are planning to explore a bit more in terms of which particular CBT protocols. So cognitive behavioral therapy isn't the same for every disorder. There are different um, cognitive behavioral therapy protocols, if you want, that are used for different types of symptoms that people experience. And um, the next steps will be to explore which of these CBT protocols um, seem to have the better outcomes for each um, depression subtype, if you want. Uh, we're also going to look at things like medication, antidepressants, and how they interact with different CBT protocols um, in terms of clinical outcomes for patients. So we want to really explore a bit deeper. Um what types of treatments um, are best for each patient and then run a clinical trial in collaboration with the University of Sheffield to randomly allocate patients coming into a service to different types of treatment to see if we can um, improve patient outcomes with this more personalized uh, care approach rather than the one-size-fits-all that we currently have that Jennifer was describing earlier.
0: So the potential there to, as you say, identify these different treatment protocols with CBT that are more effective for um, different subtypes of depression.
2: Absolutely. And it's these sorts of studies um, that we are planning to run, these sorts of clinical trials that ultimately may result in, in a change in clinical practice um, that is adopted more broadly and that will impact the most lives. So it's it's really exciting. It's really promising and uh, we're really excited about doing this trial.
0: Absolutely. So um, I wonder if I could just ask you guys then, what are your, for some maybe some predictions for the future of treating depression? Where do we think we'll be in a couple of years with this? A- Anna, I wonder if I could start with you.
2: Well, a couple of years may be quite the short term, but um, within five years, I think we will be in a world where we have a better idea on what specific treatment we should offer to a patient that comes into a service with symptoms of depression. And we know that that treatment approach is the one that is best suited for that patient. So I think we are going to take a huge step forward in depression care. And I think this will result in, in a large shift um, in clinical outcomes for patients with depression and you know if you, if you think that even if it's a 5% improvement in recovery rate for patients if we go from 50% to 55% percent you multiply that by millions of people presenting with depression every year and you'll see that the impact that you'll have it will affect hundreds of thousands or millions of people
3: worldwide so i think it will be fantastic
0: Mel, where do you think we'll be in in five years with this?
3: Well, similar to what Anna said, I hope that we've moved, we've shifted towards a more personalised approach, as Anna kind of described. And this is something that I think a lot of people are quite interested in. There's a lot of research that's going in to try and make um, people's access to therapy a lot more personalised based on individual features or characteristics that we know are maybe more likely or less likely to respond to treatment. And this will... um, really helpful not only help people access the treatment's gonna be best for them quicker which will also make it more cost effective and hopefully then improve outcomes as well so hopefully it'll become a more streamlined more personalized approach and um, that's what I hope
0: anyway brilliant and, and Jennifer
3: so I, I agree with Mel
1: and Anna and also to say a big problem in therapy is dropping out of therapy which kind of makes a lot of sense that you would drop out if the treatment you were receiving wasn't helping you because you maybe had a, a different depression subtype or weren't receiving as personalized uh, treatment as you uh, would need to receive in order to, to get better to recover from depression. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it's called engagement in therapy. So how do we get people to continue staying in care and then also participate in the care, not just be a passive participant? I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful for uh, digital interventions that will help to augment care. So in addition to the um, one-on-one human interactions, but also digital interventions um, with things called conversational agents or, or other um tools that can help the person not just talk with a the therapist for one hour a week, but rather to make it a little bit every day, because we know that people don't tend to learn or change behavior um, in in large chunks, but rather small chunks more frequently. So, I'm, so in the end, I'm hopeful for better recovery rates uh, is the ultimate goal, and we can get there by improving the quality of care that we receive, and people having more access to care, and people also staying in care because they they feel like they're getting some sort of benefit out of it oh and, and and i want my one last plug hopefully people will be using fewer medications over time because they can uh can benefit via uh, psychological therapies versus medication interventions
0: thanks jen that's a uh, nice optimistic view for the future i, I hope we get that too <laughs> so i think that's all we have time for today We've really covered depression in a lot of depth and I'm excited to see where this research leads in the future. I'd I'd like to thank my three guests. Jennifer, thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Mel, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: And Anna, thank you for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all we have time for, but it was great to hear about this important research and the impact it could have. Join us next time when we'll be talking about using AI in mental health care, the potentially transformative impact it could have along with some of the ethical implications. It's going to be great, so I hope you'll join us for it. Make sure to follow Thinking Ahead wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. I've been Tom Clalford, and this has been Thinking Ahead.